34. E dangerous for him to attempt to proceed to Kwangan until a fortnight had elapsed. This prolonged delay was, of course, a disappointment to the three travelers, but they enjoyed their stay immensely. When Pingwan became strong enough to leave the veranda, Barton took him and the pages to see his Chinese school. It was a most novel sight, but what pleased the pages most was to find that Barton was as popular with his Chinese pupils as he had been, a few years previously, with thousands of English schoolboys. Continued on page 334, The Hidden Room, Dreaming Again, Millicent, and your hands folded in your lap. Your father would have to go without shirts if it were left to you. Millicent Bassett started up from the pleasant rose-covered wall where she had been sitting, and her fair face flushed at her aunt's sharp words. Indeed, Aunt Deborah, I am very sorry, but the news from Newbury has driven all other thoughts from my mind. I was wishing I could have been with Anthony and father, instead of being left at home doing nothing while they are fighting. There is no call for you to do nothing, replied Aunt Deborah dryly. While work lies ready to your hand, take your scene indoors to your chamber, and stir not from it till supper time. I am going to the village to see the smith's son, I hear he was so hurt in the fight. Millicent rose with a sigh, and carried her work to her room as she was bidden. She turned her back resolutely to the window, and set to work to make up for lost time. A quaint picture she made in the low oak-paneled room, in her grey dress and white kerchief for her father. Sir James Bassett, was a staunch roundhead, and so was Dame Deborah, his sister, who had ruled his household since the death of his wife. These were stirring times. The civil war between the roundheads and Charles I was at its height, and two days before, the sound of guns had been distinctly heard at Wooden Bassett, for a battle had been fought at Newbury, and night had fallen before either side could claim the victory. Sir James Bassett and his son had both been fighting, but had escaped and hurt and had gone on with the parliamentary army to London, finding means, however, to send a message home about their safety, and Deborah, with the calmness of a strong nature, after assembling the family to return thanks for the good news, went quietly on with her usual duties, expecting everyone else to do the same, but to Millicent this seemed impossible, how could she be expected to sit and stitch wristbands, when, only six miles away, the Sunday shining so quietly in at the window, was looking down on the battlefield, oh, if I had only been a man, she cried, to ride forth instead of being left here, hardly had the words crossed her lips before one of the panels in a dark corner of the room flew back, revealing to her startled eyes a tall youth, whose long curls and the dainty lace ruffles on his torn and stained shirt proved him to be one of those young cavaliers whom Millicent had often wished to know, but who to Aunt Deborah represented all that was lawless and wicked. She started to her feet in terror, at that moment the presence of her aunt, or even of one of the babies, as she called her nine-year-old twin sisters, would have been a comfort, but the stranger's voice reassured her. Am I speaking to Mistress Millicent Bassett? He asked with a low bow, which brought the color to Millicent's face, for few people spoke to her as if she were a grown-up. Yes, I am Millicent Bassett, at your service, she answered, then, plucking up her courage. She added, how did you come here, and what right have you to take the panel out of the wall? A smile passed across the young soldier's face, bravely asked, he said, and easily answered had I time, but I must show you something first, do you recognize that? And, stepping forward, he laid something on the table beside her, 
at that moment hurrying feet and shrill voices were heard in the passage, it was the twins, happily in their eagerness they paused for a moment, disputing which should open the door, then a strange thing happened, Millicent had turned from the stranger for a moment as the children fumbled at the lock, and when she turned her head again he had vanished, and the paneled wall looked exactly as it had always done. All that remained to prove that she had not been dreaming was the little packet he had placed on the table. Millicent quickly placed her sewing on the packet and swept it into her lap before she listened to what the excited little girls had to say. See, sister, cried Allison, holding out her apron to show six little fluffy chickens, what my speckled hen has hatched, all unknown to anyone. We do not know where to put them. Will you come out and choose a place for them? Nay, children that I cannot do, for I promised Aunt Deborah to stay here and so, but I can show you a place from the window, the old dog kennel yonder would be a good house for the hen and her brood, and you can watch for Aunt Deborah and let her see them when she returns, run away now, like good little maidens, the chicks will soon grow cold without their mother, and I have this long seam to stitch before supper, the children ran off well pleased, and Millicent was left alone, feeling safe from interruption, for she knew she would be warned of Aunt Deborah's approach by their excited voices. When the door closed behind them, she went softly to it and drew the bolt. Then she took up the mysterious little parcel, and was greatly surprised to find it was a little testament which belonged to her brother Antony, which he always carried in his pocket, to make sure she opened it. And there on the flyleaf was his name, Antony, from Millicent, and beneath was written as if in haste, I send this by the hand of Ralph D. Fawkes, help him as he helped me. Continued on page 330, The Hidden Room. Continued from page 327, Millicent sprang to her feet. For the last six months she had added this name to her prayers, for its unknown owner had saved the life of her brother at the Battle of Hopton Heath, when his side had been rooted, and he his horse killed under him, and a terrible sword cut in his arm had hidden in a little copse hardly expecting to escape being caught and hung as a rebel. He was a slight young fellow, like a girl, with a laughing face and yellow locks hanging on his shoulders. His name was Fawkes, but more than that I had no time to ask or he to answer, had it not been for him I had scarce hoped to see you again. Sister, Antony had said in answer to her eager questions as to what the young man was like, and she had treasured up the description in her heart, and now here he was at her side for no sooner was she seated than the panel flew back and he stepped into the room, she held out the little book, you are Ralph D. Fowles, she said, and Antony sent you, but I do not know how you have got behind the woodwork, or how you dare come to this house you, a royalist, if Aunt Deborah knew, again a smile crossed the young man's face, nay, he answered, but Aunt Deborah must not know, I trust to you, Mistress Millicent, your brother said you would help us, us, repeated Millicent in surprise, is there then another, where is he, you know not the secrets of your own house, answered D. Fawkes, and, stepping back, he showed her that a few steps led from the secret door to a small, narrow room, lit only by a grating far up in the wall, it was barely furnished and evidently meant for a hiding place, as a door at the further end pointed to another way of escape, she followed her guide down the steps, and when her eyes became accustomed to the gloom, she saw an elderly man, wrapped in torn and stained garments, lying asleep on a low bed in the corner. Tis my father, whispered Ralph, he was wounded in the thigh by a ball at Newbury, 
but I got him on his horse and set off in the darkness, hoping to reach Oxford somehow, but we had gone but eight miles when he fainted and fell from his horse, someone was riding up behind, and careless whether it were a friend or foe so long as I found help, I cried out, it was your brother, and he, in gratitude for some slight service which I did him months ago, held the horse while I lifted my father up, and then guided us to the entrance to that passage, pointing to the door in the corner, tis in an old tower a mile hence, and so we brought him here, Antony brought him, Antony here, and did not tell me, cried Millicent hastily, he had no time, in truth he laid himself open to suspicion by loitering so long, but see, my father awakes, and he hurried forward as the old man raised himself on his arm and gazed round, water, he muttered, water, Ralph, I feel weak, and he fell back again unconscious, he has had no food since he left the field, and my water flagon is long since empty, explained Ralph, I thought that mayhap you could get us some food in the night when the household is quiet, for I too am well nigh famished, famished, cried Millicent impetuously, I should think so, I shall go and get some food this very moment, but stay, said her companion hastily, we are safe so far, but a little want of caution would ruin all, rather wait than be discovered, and he said you could trust me, she said proudly, and she vanished through the panel, shutting it carefully behind her, leaving Ralph wondering if he had done rightly in trusting his secret to this impulsive young girl, there was something in her face, however, which gave him confidence, it seemed a long time before he heard a little tap on the wood, and, drawing back the door, he found her standing with her arms full, in one hand she held a glass of milk, while under her arm was a flagon, and in her apron was a large loaf of bread, with some cups and a knife, I got these easily from the cellar, she said, but I could not bring any meat, for old Joan was in the buttery, I must get that at night, to Ralph, faint with hunger, what she had brought was food fit for a king, and he began to feed his father while Millicent slipped away to her room again, that night, when everyone was asleep, Millicent went up and down the house without her shoes, flitting about like a ghost from place to place, taking things here and there which she did not think would be missed, some blankets from the great chest in the gallery, a pair of sheets, an old shirt of Antony's, some soft rags, a good supply of provisions anything, in short, that she thought would be of use to the two occupants of the hidden room, for she knew that she must not visit them too often, in case her secret was discovered, when she had collected them in a heap behind the panel, she tapped lightly on the wood and Ralph came, the tears came into his eyes when he saw the comforts which she had gathered together, may heaven reward you, he said, for I cannot, nay, answered Millicent, tis but little to thank me for, as you will find if you have an appetite like Antony, for there were only one round of beef and two pasties in the buttery, and I dare not take too much for fear Martha the cook should notice in the morning, and I must not come again till tomorrow night, but then I will bring a few eggs they will nourish your father, and with a sigh of relief Millicent saw him disappear with the things, and she went to sleep thinking that after all it would not be so difficult to provide the strangers with food until the old knight was able to travel, and no one would ever find out, alas, her troubles were just beginning, for next evening, while she was waiting in her room until it was safe to carry food to the fugitives, a small stone came sharply against the window, and, looking out, she saw a dark figure standing in the shadow of the great yew tree, who is there, she cried softly, 
Tis I, mistress, said the figure, moving close up to the window. It was Mark Field, Antony's own man and foster brother. What brings you here, Mark? Has Oppie fallen, Antony? She asked in haste. Nay, the young master is well and safe in London, Mistress Millicent. But he bade me carry this note to you and to deliver it into none other hands but yours. It is of importance, for he bade me ride like the wind and spare not my steed. And I was to tell no man I was here, or wait for an answer, but just give it to me. Get a fresh nag from the stable and hasten back to London, so that no man might mark my absence. So good night, mistress. And the honest fellow handed up the paper to Millicent and vanished in the darkness. She opened it and read, Dearest, rumors have got abroad that Sir Denville V. Fawkes and his son are harboring near Bassett Court. Our father knows not of the matter, and is anxious that troopers be sent to watch the district. They will lie at the court and doubtless search the house. Set your wits to work, for my honor is at stake. I would fain have those to escape. The younger had better depart. His appearance with the king's force would remove suspicion. For the other you must do your best. Antony, Millicent sat still for a long time. The danger was great, but her courage rose to meet it. If she could prevent it, no harm would come to the helpless old man in the secret room, neither would the disgrace of having harbored an enemy fall on her father. No one, so far as she knew, knew aught of the hidden room. If the soldiers could be kept from discovering that, all might be well. There seemed only one way to prevent them doing so. If she were ill and in bed while they were in the house, they would not search her room too narrowly. But her conscience told her that she must really be ill, not pretend, and she gave a shiver as she thought of a mixture of mustard and water which Aunt Deborah had administered to Marjorie once when she mistook laburnum pods for peas. She remembered how ill the child was afterwards, and she thought if she could make herself as ill as that, there would be no deceit in saying she could not get up. Having come to this decision she rose, and tapping on the panel, she was soon talking over the situation with Ralph and his father, whose wound was healing, although he was not yet able to walk. When he heard the contents of the letter he was anxious to give himself up, rather than bring disgrace and danger on the house which had sheltered him, but this Millicent would not hear of. Ralph at once began his preparations for his departure as he felt that Antony's advice was good, and that if once he were known to have joined the king at Oxford the search for his father might be given up. Oxford was only some thirty miles distant, and if he started at once he would not be far from it at daybreak. Millicent's heart felt heavy when, after bidding her a courteous adieu and embracing his father, he vanished along the dark passage which led to the opening in the woods. She wondered if she would ever meet him again. She appeared in he a cavalier their lots seemed to lie so far apart, before the thought had passed he was back in the room again, the way is blocked, he said, the rains have loosened the soil, and there has been a heavy fall of earth, tis so much the better for you, father, even had the soldiers not discovered the door in the wainscot, they might have found the other entrance in the woods, the question island how am I to get out, you must get out through my window, said Millicent, tis not far from the ground, and there is the apple tree. Ralph did not speak as he followed her up the steps and through the room to where the casement window stood half open, but he turned before he swung himself over the sill. Hitherto have I dreamt of no fair lady save my mother, he said, she had ever been my guardian angel. Now your face will mingle with hers in my memory, and your name with hers in my prayers. These are troublous times, but if I live I will see you again sometime, 
and meanwhile, as a remembrance, may I have these, and he touched a bunch of yellow roses which she wore in her belt, hardly knowing what she did, she placed them in his hand, and a moment afterwards she was alone, she stood a long time where he left her, then awaking from her reverie, she went to the buttery, where she mixed and drank her nauseous draught, then she went back to her room, and for the next few hours she felt as ill and miserable as anyone could be, concluded on page 338, the rabbit and the hare, I've been to town, a rabbit said, oh sleepy Mr. Hare, and if you don't get out of bed you'll miss the market there, how mean of you, the other whined, you've bought the best, I see, and in the market I shall find the worst is left for me, the rabbit mutely turned away from language so unfair, he trotted home, and from that day he shunned the lazy hare, for this, said he, is plain to me, all lazy folk are prone to blame their friends, and never see the fault is theirs alone, a motor car of the past, motorists have cause to be thankful they live in a good-natured age, of course, they are often blamed for accidents, not always deservedly, but had they lived in the early part of the 19th century, they would have been much worse off, about that time, several persons constructed steam carriages, meant to run upon ordinary roads, the popular anger, however, was so great that they had to give up running them, nearly every town and village greeted them with jeers and hostile cries, with occasional presence of brickbats or stones, and it happened more than once that a furious mob attacked a party, and tried to break the machine to pieces, Mr. Gurney was a notable contriver of such carriages, he had several, of different styles, and probably the most remarkable of his experiments was the making of one with a divided boiler, to relieve the fears which were common then amongst people to whom steam was a novelty, and who fancied that a boiler was in great danger of bursting from the pressure of the steam. Some folks said that Mr. Gurney, who was a doctor, took the idea of his peculiar boiler from the arteries and veins of the human body, at any rate, he had a double arrangement of pipes, taking the form of a horseshoe, and made of welded iron, there were forty pipes, so that if one burst it could only do a trifling amount of harm, and the damage was easily repaired, the principle was that of the water to boilers of the present day, Mr. Gurney had also what he called separators, which returned to the boiler any water that was not needed in the pipes, a tank supplied water to the boiler by means of a pump with a flexible hose, coke or charcoal was burned in the furnace, so that there was very little smoke, and the machinery moved almost noiselessly, it was reckoned to be about 12 horsepower, and traveled at any rate between 4 and 15 miles an hour, inside and outside the vehicle 18 or 20 persons could be seated, the guide or conductor sat in front, and steered the machine by pilot wheels fastened to a pole, which went from end to end of the carriage, he had also under his management a lever which would stop the carriage speedily, and another to reverse the action of the wheels, the tank, containing about 60 gallons, and the furnace were placed in what they called the hind boot, the foreboot contained luggage, if any was carried, another of Mr. Gurney's special contrivances was a propeller fixed at the back of the carriage, it could be made to touch the ground when traveling up a hill, assisting the steam power, a few experimental trips were made, but the carriage was not brought into general use, JRSC Wonderful Caverns, X the Cliff Dwellers of North America, one of the tribes which at a very early date sought refuge in cliff caverns is supposed to have been that of the Pueblo Indians of the Mesa Verde in Colorado, whose descendants, though not cave dwellers, are still found in New Mexico, 
from the proofs of partial civilization found in their deserted homes, we may believe them to have been more refined and gentler than the savage Apaches and similar fighting tribes who overcame them, and drove them out to find fresh abiding places. Their caves are generally built in with masonry, and had queer-shaped windows here and there, the floors were smoothed and covered with red clay beaten hard, whilst occasionally the walls received coats of fine red and yellow plaster, with stripes of darker colors. The larger caves were divided into several rooms, and in many there was an astufa, or specially warm, dry apartment. The astufa was always round in form, and is supposed to have been used for religious purposes. It was probably a sort of private chapel for one or more families, and the round shape was most likely a survival of the old round huts or wigwams wherein their ancestors had dwelt in the old days. Most of these cave houses are of rough workmanship, but here and there, especially in one known as the Cliff Palace, the blocks of stone have been carefully hewn and put together. The condition of early races may be largely judged by the pottery they used and the Pueblo Indians have left really beautiful specimens of this ancient craft. The bowls are often of a fine red, with white patterns outside, and black and red designs inside. The lamps found are of a curious boat-shaped form, and hold quite a lot of oil. Mummies have been discovered perfectly preserved in their rock places of burial, each wrapped in cloth made entirely of feathers. Besides their cliff homes, the Pueblos, though probably much later, had another form of settlement building huge villages on the top of a steep rock, surrounded with precipices all but inaccessible. The walls of the houses were sometimes of stone, sometimes of bricks dried in the Sunday or more often of adobe, or in common English. But, the Indians were careful to choose a rock on which a spring of water rose, round which the dwellings clustered, here, safe in their fortress homes, with a plentiful supply of provisions, the Pueblos might defy their enemies below. Many. Both of these rock and cave dwellings, were community houses, in which a number of families lived, each owning one or more rooms, very much after the fashion in which people nowadays occupy flats in London and New York. Probably the finest of these combinations of rock and masonry is that near Beaver Creek in New Mexico, known as Montezuma's Castle. The foundations of masonry let into the solid rock begin 80 feet above the valley, and the building is about 50 feet high. It is in the form of a crescent, and parts of it have five stories, though the top one cannot be seen from below, as it is close under the roof of the cavern. The owners of these top rooms would have had a dull time but for the projecting roof of number four story, which served them for a balcony and general lookout. The building has 25 rooms of masonry, besides many rock chambers at the sides and below the castle. The timber of the houses is still sound and the rafters which project outside the walls have the ends burned off instead of sawn, whilst many of the roofs, both of mud and thatch, are still perfect. The building overhangs the canyon, and to reach it ladders were placed from one shelf of rock to another, all sloping outwards just the wrong way for safety, and yet up these getty stairways not only all supplies of food, but the solid materials for building this immense structure, had to be carried. Helena Heath afloat on the Dogger Bank, a story of adventure on the North Sea and in China, continued from page 327, chapter XV, Ping Wan recovered fairly quickly, and it was early one morning, nearly a fortnight after he had been taken ill, when, having bidden farewell to their kind hosts, the three friends passed out of the town, and began their six-mile journey along the muddy track which led to Kwangan. 
Before they had gone far they found a cart stuck in the mud. The owner and his wife the latter looking very comical with her tiny crippled feet and black trousers stood helplessly beside it. Noble brothers, the man called out to the approaching travelers, your dog of a servant implores you to assist him to move his cart. He wants us to help him get his cart out of that hole, Ping Wong said to the pages, in an undertone. Shall we? Certainly, Charlie answered. Charlie, Fred, and Ping Wong walked up to the cart and putting forth all their strength moved it, at the first attempt, out of the rut in which it had stuck, the Chinaman thanked them profusely for their help, his wife said nothing, but stared at Charlie in a way that made him feel quite uncomfortable, he was much relieved when, in obedience to her husband's call to come and take her seat, she toddled off towards the vehicle, it's a wonder, Charlie whispered to Fred, that she doesn't fall on her nose, if she did it would not spoil it, for it's flat already. Hello. What's Ping Wong saying to the old man? In a few moments they knew. Ping Wong came over to them. And said. Quietly. These people are on their way to Kwangan. And they will drive us there for 100 cash. A cash is a copper coin with a square hole in the middle. Its value is about a fifth of an English farthing. These coins are carried strung together. And their value being so small a man can have a heavy load of coppers without being even moderately rich. It's cheap, Fred answered, let us accept, Ping Wong therefore informed his noble brother that the sons of dogs would have the pleasure of riding in his magnificent carriage, before they had traveled far the pages came to the conclusion that the ride was by no means a cheap one, and that instead of paying to ride they ought to have been paid, so frequently were they called upon to pull or push the cart out of some rut in which it stuck fast, they felt that the wily old Chinaman had made a very good bargain and if they had been able to speak Chinese they would have told him so. Charlie, however, disliked the woman much more than he did her husband. She stared at him almost continuously while they were on the cart, and when he was in the road helping to get the vehicle out of a rut, he could see her still peeping out at him. When the cart had stuck in the mud for the tenth time in half an hour, Charlie whispered to Fred, as they were extricating it, I have had enough of this, let's walk. Fred nodded his head and then told Ping Wong their decision. Ping Wong was as ready as they to get away from the cart, and when it had been pushed and pulled out of the rut he informed the cart owner that they were about to leave him. Noble brother, he said, if your dogs of servants walk, your magnificent carriage will be lighter, and not stick in the mud so frequently. Noble brother, the cart owner answered, with a savage expression on his face, which proved that he considered Ping Wong far from being noble. You will not forget that you promised to pay your humble slave 100 cash. Ping Wong paid the cart owner. But when the woman saw that the money was safe in her husband's wallet, she stretched forth her hand, seized Charlie's pigtail, and tugged at it with all her strength. Foreigner, she screamed as she fell backwards in the cart with the pigtail, and skull cap attached, in her hand. Foreigners, the man shouted. On seeing Charlie's unmistakably European head for his beehive had fallen off and, seizing Ping Wong's pigtail with both hands, pulled it with tremendous force. Ping Wong shouted with pain, but the cart owner being convinced that if he pulled hard enough the pigtail would come off, tugged still more vigorously. In great pain Ping Wong suddenly turned right about, and, before the cart owner had time to move, seized his own pigtail with his mouth, about an inch from his tormentor's hands and held it tight between his teeth. The cart owner continued to tug viciously, but Ping Wong struck him several blows on the face with his fist, 
and finally compelled him to release his hold. In the meanwhile Charlie had climbed into the cart, and was struggling with the Chinese woman to regain his pigtail. At first he thought that she was sitting on it, but when he pulled her up, he found he had been mistaken. Foreigner, foreigner, she screamed as he searched about the cart, and frequently she struck him with her open hands. If you won't keep quiet, madam, Charlie said, I shall have to put you out. He caught hold of her with the intention of lifting her out so that he might search the cart and disturbed, but the moment that he touched her she screamed frantically, her husband was too busy holding his bruised face to heed her, but King Wan went at once to see what was happening, and finding that Charlie was lifting her bodily, shouted, put her down, Charlie, don't touch her, but she has hidden my pigtail, Charlie protested, never mind, don't touch her again, for it's a terrible insult to a Chinese woman to lay hands on her, put her down and jump out, Charlie put the woman down, jumped out of the cart, and picked up his beehive, but he was very indignant at having been robbed of his pigtail, to stop the cartman from following them, he caught hold of the horse, and led it into the thickest mud, where the wheels sank in almost to the axle, they started off at a trot immediately, the Chinaman and his wife yelling after them insulting remarks, fortunately there was no one about just then, and the three travelers were out of sight before the cartman and his wife had an opportunity of telling anyone about the foreigners whom they had seen disguised as Chinamen. When they had run for about a quarter of a mile, they began to walk, and discussed what should be done to hide the loss of Charlie's pigtail. To start with, Fred said, We had better take off our goggles now. If you can hide the loss until we get to Kwangan, said Ping Wong, I will buy you a new one. Put your beehive on the back of your head. Charlie did so. But as he was without a skull cap, his European forehead was most noticeable. That will never do. King Wan declared. Put your beehive as it was before. We will walk in single file, I in front of you, and Fred behind you. In that order they had walked for nearly two miles. When a man, passing in the opposite direction, mistook Fred for an acquaintance, he stopped short, and shook his own hands. Fred knew that the Chinese, when they meet a friend, instead of shaking his hand, shake their own, wishing to be polite. He shook his own hands in reply. Then the Chinaman made some remark. Fortunately Ping Wang, having been nudged by Charlie, turned round, and seeing Fred being addressed by a Chinaman, explained that Fred was a man of weak intellect. The Chinaman was astonished, but having satisfied himself that Fred was not the man he had fancied, went on his way. Turning round, however, after walking a few yards, 